Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with a perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. This episode is brought to you by Quantstamp. Quantstamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. The technology is being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. My guest for Unconfirmed today is Milton Demirers, who runs the investment and advisory firm Athena Capital and was until recently a digital currency group. Welcome, Milton. Hi, Laura. So what's been on your mind lately? <laughs> it has been such an interesting three months. Um, I think, you know, in January, I was feeling exuberant. We were all riding the highs of the crypto market. And in a bull market, I think everyone feels like a genius and every project looks very sexy. And then with the recent market correction we've had, it's been nice to have time to really think about long term what the drivers of value, what the drivers of growth in this ecosystem will be and to just take some time to focus my thoughts and think about where I want to spend my time going forward. Well, you did recently write a very interesting medium post drawing on your experience in the oil and gas industry and applying it to tokenomics and ICOs. What were the main points you were trying to get across in that post? Absolutely. So I think there are really two points, Laura, that I've been focused on. The first is this idea of quote unquote tokenomics, which is a word that just makes me laugh. Um, I'm an economist and a mathematician, and in my world, uh, we call it plain old supply and demand. And so I think what we're seeing with ICOs in particular and with all of these tokens people are creating is we're heavily manipulating supply. We're creating artificial scarcity of these tokens by constraining supply. So we see a lot of offerings where the project team will retain up to 90% of the tokens and only sell 10%. And then that creates this frenzy where everyone wants to get in and get these tokens because they believe someday this network will be really, really valuable. But the thing that's really interesting is very few networks have actually proven that there is demand. And so we're tr seeing all these project teams try to create demand. Um, but the hard part is, is 
there really isn't a lot of natural demand for these tokens yet. And so people are trying to think about how to manufacture demand for capacity on these networks and for the underlying tokens. So that's kind of theme one is what are the real drivers of supply and demand if we abstract away and strip out all of the games that people are playing to artificially manipulate the price of a token? Because price is where that supply and that demand intersect. And then the second theme I really wanted to talk about was this idea of the different types of capital that we have in our ecosystem. And in my mind, we really have three primary types of capital. We have financial capital, which is just crazy abundant um, and has become incredibly cheap and incredibly easy to access. We have human capital, which is talent. And then we have social capital, which is energy, time, attention. I think what we found is all of these projects that have raised a lot of financial capital have raised it from primarily investors who are focused on generating a financial return. They may have a philosophical interest in the underlying project, but they're not going to be the types of people who have a natural demand for these tokens they're buying. And so I think the interesting question becomes, how do these projects now use all of this capital they have on their balance sheets? and use it in an effective way to get the resources that are far scarcer, which is talent and which is attention. And so we see all of these crazy headlines people are coming up with. People are trying to announce partnerships, create all of these news cycles around their project, which is why I think um, this ecosystem can feel so noisy, is the level of competition for attention is just really, really high. So those were my primary two, two takeaways. And it was um, great just seeing the responses that post got. And I was really excited to see that a lot of people were thinking about similar things. And hopefully it's one of the many voices that that will contribute to a more rational conversation about what we want to build going forward. This book has come up before on this podcast. I don't know if you have heard me reference it. I'm still in the middle of reading it, so I don't have the full thesis yet, but it's the Carlotta Perez book, Technological Revolutions (laughs) and Financial Capital. Because the one question that I had when I was reading your post is I agree with a lot of what you were saying, but a part of me just feels like it's sort of where we are in the cycle, right? It's like, everything's so early, people are just building. And so this is the point where uh, Perez would say like, oh, here we have the speculative investment coming in, which is what eventually does help build something real that does drive real innovation. Do you do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of Perez's book. I've been referencing it, I think, for the last two two years now. And one of the great things about it is it absolutely points out that this is very, very normal for any new technology that shifts paradigms or creates step function changes in how certain industries work. And so absolutely, I think this financial capital that's flooding into the system has been a really critical catalyst for bringing more entrepreneurs, more ideas to the market. And it's going to take a while for the production capital in the space to catch up. But I do think one of the interesting things to look at is what happens to all of this financial capital. Um, I did worry, you know, from 2015 to 2017, I had all of these portfolio companies at Digital Currency Group 
And I was worried about them. It was really hard to raise money for anything with the word Bitcoin in it, which is why you saw so many companies pivot to blockchain technology rather than Bitcoin. And now they're pivoting back to <laughs> tokens and crypto because coincidentally, the money is no longer really in enterprise <laughs> blockchains. It's, it's shifted back to crypto. Um, and so I think that's just kind of the way the pendulum swings. But I, I do think this ecosystem was starved for capital for a long time. What we have seen, though, is a lot of replication of ideas rather than really new and innovative ideas coming to market. And so at Athena, what I've really been focused on is trying to find contrarian ideas. I want to find things that people aren't thinking about. I want to find the really unsexy stuff. So in the world of oil and gas, right, it'd be something like a rig. It would be something like hauling waste from a wellbore. It would be something like hauling water. Um, things that people don't typically perceive as sexy, but because they're acyclical and because they operate independent of the price of the underlying asset, they continue to make money whether we're in a bull market or in a bear market. And what are some examples of, of those types of services? Absolutely. So I think people are always going to need portfolio management tools. I think people are always going to be trading. So exchanges and and trading venues are a critical part of that. I think distribution platforms right now are getting a lot of attention. Um, it's It'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. But what I've really seen in crypto land is everyone's really focused on product creation. So ICO advisors, people who write white papers, people who create smart contracts, audit smart contracts, this kind of product creation to me. Then the next step in the life cycle, which is getting heavily capitalized right now, is product distribution. So once I have my tokens, my product, how do I get it out into the market? So that's where we see, you know, exchanges, ATSs, listing services, etc. And then the part that I'm really excited about where I think people aren't spending enough time is life cycle management. So once my token or my asset or my network is live, how do I manage the life cycle? How do I perform maintenance? How do I perform upgrades? How do I enable people to move jurisdictions, uh, tokens, pardon, across jurisdictions, especially for these new quote-unquote security tokens that are coming to market? How do I think about managing balance sheet capital? How do I think about managing risk exposure? How do I think about financial derivatives? How do I think about you know regulatory affairs? How do I think about workflow management, investor reporting, all of these things that are really more analogous to the traditional finance world, I think will start to creep into crypto just because it's the closest to what we have right now. And I do think the evolution of this market will take, you know, five, 10, possibly longer years. And then I think the other thing we're going to start seeing, which um, was the hypothesis behind a recent series of presentations and talks I've been doing, is this idea of how tokens die or how protocols and networks die. And I do think, you know, we've seen 51% attacks. We saw that with Verge last week. Last November, we saw, you know, the Bitcoin cash chain try to overtake the Bitcoin chain. I do think in the future, we may see protocol wars take on a new shape and form. And so it'll be interesting to see if I hold a token that, um, you know, is part of a protocol that no longer has any development on it. What does that mean for me as the holder of an asset or something that's supposed to provide me utility. So I think these are the fun questions I've been asking myself, which is pretty nerdy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is all stuff that I'm fascinated by as well. So we're going to keep discussing more on this topic and your views. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. 
ConRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results. It can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at QuantStamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, QuantStamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. I'm speaking with Meltem Demirers of Athena Capital. I actually wanted to circle back to what you mentioned in the beginning about scarcity as well and sort of like artificial scarcity. Because one thing that I've heard teams say to me in terms of justifying why they maybe only sell, you know, five or 10% of the tokens is that then they will use the remaining tokens to incentivize behavior on the network. And I wanted to hear what your take was on that justification and then also maybe tie it to another criticism that you had that I found so fascinating, which was about these new ecosystem funds that are popping up. (laughs) Sure. Um, So I think this idea of scarcity is a really interesting one. And I fully empathize with teams who are going through this process. I mean, look, this is the Wild West. No one's really ever done a secondary fundraise, a secondary token sale. So I fully appreciate that people who are building these projects that may take 10, 20, 50 years to fully implement their vision want to have as much capital at their disposal as possible. I do think one of the things I worry about is that people who are buying these assets don't really understand what they're buying, which is why I love um, on-chain FX. It's instead of using coin market cap, I've been trying to use on-chain FX more because one of the cool things they do is they actually list out what percent of tokens have been released into the market. So for example, if you own an asset, but only 10% of the tokens that are going to eventually be in supplier in the market today, your understanding of how to value that asset could be totally misguided. Um, they also have something called year 2050 market cap, which I think is a pretty cool metric as well, which shows based on the existing inflation schedule and supply release schedule, um, what amount of tokens would be in circulation in the year 2050. So that's another interesting way to sort of drive at the same conclusion, which is once these artificial supply constraints go away, um, we can actually start to see how these incentive mechanisms work. My other sort of hesitation is theoretically this idea of this financial incentive in the form of a token is compelling enough to get developers to participate in a network and to get stakers and and network participants to come online. But the other thing I think about is one, instead of thinking that and hypothesizing about it, can we run small-scale experiments with underlying empirical evidence um, to confirm or reject some of those ideas? I think this is the other thing at Athena I've been really focused on is finding teams who aren't raising hundreds of millions of dollars, but finding teams who are raising 
$250,000 or $500,000 and they have a hypothesis and really working with them to say, okay, let's test this hypothesis. Let's maybe put some money into this idea and see what we find when we actually try to implement it. And so I would love to actually see more data-driven evidence that our hypotheses around how demand curation works hold true in a market like this. And the other piece is it's just way too noisy. There are you know hundreds of protocols that are competing for the same set of resources for that human capital. That's so scarce. And so what I wonder is if the incentives we thought would work in one set of conditions are going to work in our current market. And so to me, it's really about understanding what hypothesis it is that we're trying to test and really starting to design more experiments that enable us to quickly test and accept or reject those hypotheses and then adjust them and tweak them because nothing in this ecosystem is static, right? Everything's incredibly dynamic and incredibly fast moving. And so creating this ability to be really agile and test our assumptions about the world is, I think, a really valuable thing to start doing. Yeah, I, it's actually not that dissimilar from what we do in journalism, where we like A-B (laughs) test a headline or a subject line for an email to see what gets more clicks or opens. Um, But I actually wanted to go back to the scarcity issue, um, because I do think that this is an important one for listeners to understand if they haven't sort of investigated this before. But it is true that because CoinMarketCap only lists um, circulating supply and it doesn't include the total float in its market caps, that can actually lead to like seriously misleading interpretations of what the market cap of any particular token is. And so it can make some of them seem more realistic than they actually are. And like a really good example of this is that last year for the this big cover story I did for Forbes on initial coin offerings, I interviewed Gnosis, which had in its sale only sold 4.2% of the tokens. And so in coin market cap, it looked like this fledgling product. I mean, granted, they'd been working on it for a few years, but still, you know, it wasn't like they had some live thing going. And so... At that time on CoinMarketCap, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say it was like, you know, 250 million or something was their market cap. When you actually <laughs> calculated it out, it was like 3 billion. And so we published that and they kind of, I think, objected a little bit. But, you know, that's like th- that sort of wakes you up and it's a little bit like, oh, like this new but thing. Laura, on- that's so, <laughs> but that's so irrational because, again, we're only looking at one side of the equation and price is determined by the intersection of supply with demand. If the the demand for Gnosis, for example, is constant and you pump all of the supply into the market, the calculation (laughs) for market cap is not current price times total supply. That that's completely yeah illogical. No, no, no. Oh, I mean that, but yeah, you know? but and, and I understand why people do it. But this is again where it's not necessarily a criticism. It sometimes sounds like one, and I try to be balanced in how I present my views. I think it's an opportunity to for us all to collectively say, how do we do this better? How do we have better data and metrics to support some of these things we're saying? And this is, I think, it's totally normal. This is so new, but we can definitely do better. I think well, we yeah, I, mean, I would like to. <laughs> the point of us publishing that big number was to say, like, this shouldn't be worth this much, you know, if you really think about it for a second. But it's just like, you know, it's misleading if you only look at the circulating supply. So another thing that I wanted to ask you about was you have also written or you also mentioned this about how you feel like managing the life cycle of the tokens can be better or um, or just mm-hmm. uh, portfolio management. What are your thoughts on that, especially in these volatile markets? 
Yeah, so I think the crazy thing is all of these projects who raised money in July, August, September, October held on to a lot of their crypto because we were in this crazy market and everyone who had been holding crypto historically had seen a massive appreciation in their assets. And so a lot of these projects never liquidated the proceeds from their token sale. Um, and so what ended up happening is, you know, January, everyone's feeling really good. Ether is at 1200, Bitcoin's at 19,000. Everyone's feeling great. You know, if you raise $100 million, you're now sitting on a billion dollars. You feel good. <laughs> the problem is, is that people are so focused on global maximums that they forget there are going to be a lot of local maximums and minimums. And when I say global versus local, I think global is kind of absolute over all time. And local is a more limited time-defined span. And so what we saw, I think the writing was on the wall, like that type of growth is not really sustainable. It's one of Carlotta Perez's typical bubbles, right? And so when we started seeing the beginnings of a correction, People still didn't sell. People still didn't sell. And then a few weeks ago, when Ether finally started dropping below 500, people started calling me saying, Meltem, you've been telling us to sell. You've been talking to us about <laughs> capital management. What do we do now? And I'm like, well, look, this is this is also, by the way, what happened to the Ethereum Foundation back in 2015, sadly. I remember I was a contributor to, to that initial token sale. And they had a similar issue where they raised in Bitcoin and the value of Bitcoin dropped by 50%. And so what do you do? Um, fortunately, a lot of these project ha projects have big war chests. But I think, again, one of the important things is, is really managing your capital wisely and also creating um, a pool of capital that's not tied to crypto markets and to crypt the cyclical nature of crypto markets, right? If you're building a project, you have fixed costs, you have capital expenditures, you have operating costs, you have employees that you need to pay, you have infrastructure costs that you need to pay. So the number one focus for me really needs to be, okay, what's the budget? What's the capital plan? What's your risk tolerance? Um, how, what's your base operating need of cash for the next year, for the next two years, for the next five years? And let's just have a plan to get you to a point where you can live that long. And the rest, we can let you speculate, but you don't need to do it with 100% of your cash. You don't need to do it with even 50%. Let's figure out what sort of margins are, are tolerable. And then again, a lot of people want to deploy their capital into quote unquote ecosystems. That's another place where I think just having a clear articulation of what that means and how we measure the efficacy of deploying that capital is, is also really important. Well, there's so much more to impact there, but we're, um, we're running out of time, but it's been so great having you on the show. Thanks, Laura. It's always so fun to chat with you. And I love this new podcast format because 20 minutes is so digestible. <laughs> yes, I agree. I'm getting a lot of good feedback and I'm glad you feel that way. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Frasha Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. <laughs>